You should have some notes. So those of you that think chapel is not a place to take notes, you don't have to. You can take them away with you. Just don't let me see you throw them out. Um, and those of you who do like to scribble a few things down, there's some space to do that as well. I don't think in 2018 much introduction is necessary to convince people that there are high-profile critics in our world who mock uh, those of us who even believe Jesus existed, much less that uh, the stories about him in the New Testament are more accurate than not which is something that you don't have to be a believer, but just a historian to have good reason to say. So I'm going to move to um, a good biblical number, 12. Uh, there's nothing other than I wanted to make this work out to 12 that I picked 12 reasons. Um, I could give a lot more. I could combine a few of these together and have fewer but it's neat to do it this way. Twelve reasons. Um, sometimes when I plan ahead, I bring a hat, and uh, I did, but it's attached to my jacket. Um, and then I say, for the next 40 minutes, now I'm down to 37, um, I'm going to take my Christian hat off, I'm going to lay it here to the side. Please remind me to put it back on when we're done. <laughs> but I'm going to speak as a historian. I'm not going to presuppose Christian faith or Christian belief, but make the case that there are good historical reasons for believing the broad contours, the main emphases, of the three earliest Gospels, often called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are accurate in the main points that they stress. So you can hear all the ways I've qualified myself. I'm not defending the inerrancy of anything at this point. I'm doing the much more modest task of saying there are good historical reasons for supporting the general reliability of especially the first three Gospels. Point number one, we know beyond any reasonable doubt, yes, I'm not reading it word for word from your paper, but it's the same point, what those Gospels originally claimed. Now, that does not make a word of the text true. And I sometimes meet Christians who are overly zealous apologists and they say things like, for all the manuscript evidence we have, how could these stories not be true? There's no relationship between how much manuscript evidence we have and the truth of a document we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, even with more firmness than the New Testament, exactly what J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And that doesn't turn those into true stories. It's just fun religious fiction. 
What this point does say is we know beyond any reasonable doubt what the gospel writers originally wrote. If we didn't, there really would be no point going on to any other arguments because we could be trying to defend something that isn't what was the original. Over 5,700 ancient Greek manuscripts before the printing press. Less than 1% that is textually uncertain to any significant degree. And if you have a Bible that has footnotes to textual variants, you ought to look at them. <laughs> and if you read it on a phone, you should have the footnotes, but you have to figure out what to click on. <laughs> you ought to do that. And see that no doctrine, no ethical practice of Christianity depends solely on any text where there's any significant doubt about what was originally said. But then we have to go on to the other 11 points. What helps a historian determine if an ancient text is genuinely historical? We ask, what do we know about the authors? Were they in a position to report accurate historical information? And here, if this were one of your classes and it was the topic of the day, we could spend an entire class period on, is there good evidence that the apostles, Matthew and John, and that Mark, companion of Peter and Paul, and Luke, Paul's beloved physician, really were the authors of the four Gospels attributed to them. I think there is good evidence. But even if those claims are rejected, as they often are in more liberal scholarship, all that results is that we're one person further removed. That it was a disciple of John, probably also named John, who wrote the gospel. And that still is remarkably close to the actual eyewitnesses by ancient standards. Which ties in very closely with point number three. You're looking for numbers on your handout. They're an invisible ink. But you can count. One, we have highly reliable copies. Two, the authors. <laughs> Three, all four Gospels were written during the first century of Christianity. And once again, there's a debate that if we had the time, we could point out that conservatives think Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written in the 60s. Most put John in the 90s. More liberal scholars tend to put Mark in the 70s, Matthew and Luke in the 80s. And hey, we agree on something, John in the 90s. And then the really far out ones sometimes sneak one or two gospels into the very early 100s. And that's a significant debate, but it's not the most significant one. Everybody agrees that the gospels were written within two generations, and some would say all within one generation of the life of Jesus and the events narrated. And in an age of instant information, we go, that's a long time. 
But in the ancient world, that was an incredibly short time. Typically, there are centuries in between copies that we have of and, and dates that people penned the histories of Greece and Rome and the lives of philosophers and emperors and the ancient rabbis. By ancient standards, this is a remarkably short period of time from the era of Jesus' death in either AD 30 or 33, most people would say 30. But wait a minute. One of you who's really sharp, that would be everybody, says, right? Right, oh, good, good. Problems with self-esteem with, with the rest of you? No, okay, good. Aren't you making an assumption that the gospel writers wanted to write history of some kind? Yes, I am. There is good reason for thinking they wanted to preserve accurate history. But, but wait, didn't some of them think Jesus might come back in their lifetime and, and bring about the end of the world as we know it? Yes, it does look that way. Well, who would want to preserve history in that kind of a context? Well, the Essenes at Qumran, responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, did precisely that. Because you have to hedge your bets. <laughs> Prediction might be wrong. <laughs> Anybody remember 2011? Harold Camping? <laughs> we lived through two failed ends of the world. And now he has his heavenly reward and understands better. And a few more years, about once a decade, we have collective amnesia as a Christian community, and the next one will come up. <laughs> in fact, there have been some ones that haven't been as well publicized already in between. But no, if you're not absolutely sure you know the day and the hour, it would not have been a defeater. Ah, but what about the theological biases of the evangelists? Doesn't that mitigate against careful historical preservation? It might. The old Soviet encyclopedia used to have a one-line entry under Jesus Christ, the mythological founder of Christianity. <laughs> the irony now is that uh, almost 30 years on from the collapse of the Soviet Union, you're more likely to find that definition at an American university than anywhere in Russia. And it's as ridiculous now as it was then. Sometimes the nature of one's cause or ideology actually requires that you tell the story carefully. And to this day, People research and write about World War II, the Nazis, the Holocaust, the killing of six million Jews, and some of the most careful chroniclers of that time period have been Jewish historians passionately committed to the hope that nothing like that will ever befall their people again, even as it has others, tragically, in more recent years. 
And so they very carefully chronicle the lives and deaths of their people. The revisionists who say, ah, the Holocaust has been exaggerated, are the ones who aren't committed to the Jewish faith or the Jewish people. But could the first disciples have pulled it off? It's one thing to want to record history. It's one thing to want to get an A in a class. <laughs> what a terrible psychologically terrible example to use at a Bible college. I'm sure every class, every student always gets an A. No? Okay, well then the example works. It's one thing to want to get an A in a class, it's another to succeed in performing well enough to do so. Were the ancient apostolic writers able to do so? Yes, they were, because the ancient world was an oral culture. Majority of people didn't read or write. Those that did didn't necessarily own a library or a single scroll of anything. Doesn't mean they were dumb people, it just means they communicated by word of mouth and communicated with feats of memory that would put us to shame because we don't need them. It was not uncommon for a newly ordained rabbi to demonstrate that he had the Hebrew scriptures memorized. We call it the Old Testament. That's a big book, collection of books. How is that possible? Well, it was foisted on him at age two by his parents and from the moment he learned to talk, Different parts were taught and recited and put to music and chanted. I like to tell the story, and my girls have given me permission many times, that when they were in high school and middle school, respectively, and I have confirmed this repeatedly, they had memorized words and music to every song on the CDs for Phantom of the Opera, Les Mis, Man of La Mancha, and the collected works of VeggieTales. <laughs> and neither of them ever intentionally set out to memorize. How did they do it? Over and over and over and over. <laughs> and some of that is some of my favorite music, but when they were both out of the house, there was a year when I couldn't play one of those CDs because I had heard it so often. And then I started going, finishing my withdrawal and was able to listen again. And this is how all ancient Middle Eastern cultures learned. Bart Ehrman, arch skeptic, former evangelical with an ax to grind, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, likes to say, well, the Gospels came together like the child's game of telephone. I whisper some long and complicated sentence or two to 
this first person and he whispers it to the next person and to the next and we only need to go about 12 people and say what you heard and we all laugh at how garbled it's become. There isn't a worse and less legitimate analogy to what ancient people did than that that you can think of. It's astonishing a scholar would seriously believe it. Ancient oral tradition was always public. It was always in the presence of multiple witnesses who knew the stories being passed along, who had the responsibility to insert corrections and interrupt the speaker if they accidentally got something wrong. It was something that was recited and re-recited. Nobody ever whispered it. It was out loud. Everybody could hear it. It's about 100,000 words or more in the Old Testament. And the longest gospel is Luke, which is around 19,000 rounded off. That's the child's game. Memorize the gospel. That's children's play. Didn't have the distractions and other interests that we have. You went to synagogue school five days a week and you studied one topic. The Bible. And the rabbis had a rule that until the class could flawlessly recite the entire passage in Hebrew from memory without a single mistake, you couldn't start to discuss it because you might misrepresent it. Aren't you glad you live in the 21st century? <laughs> there are some times, however, when I listen to preachers and I think they might benefit from that principle, but that's neither here nor there. But if they memorize so well, why are there so many differences in the four Gospels? Well, if four people were all going to just tell the same story identically, what would be the point? Just have one Gospel, like one book. They must have had different purposes. And the church realized there were different purposes and never censored Three at the expense of the other one. And they never censored the Gnostic Gospels because the Gnostic Gospels hadn't been written yet. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise, despite various websites that just make things up. Probably there was some kind of a literary relationship among Matthew, Mark, and Luke to explain the combination of similarities and differences. Probably Mark was written first. Matthew and Luke followed Mark at times, added their own information at other times. Maybe there was a source of some of the best sayings of Jesus that account for the 235 verses in Matthew and Luke that are roughly similar but not found in Mark and a German scholar by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher, a philosopher in 1830, dubbed that quella, which is the German word that means source. And it's come to be known as Q. It has nothing to do with James Bond. It has nothing to do with any science fiction uh, stories about intergalactic travel. Or other places you may have heard of it. It's a boring symbol for a hypothetical source. And we don't know if that's a true hypothesis, but it could be. People did it. 
But then there are differences that look suspiciously and significantly like what scholars have studied even in the 19th and 20th centuries of how people <coughs> recited orally the epic traditions of a village or a people group where it wasn't always memorized word for word. There were fixed points. There were things that had to be told in certain ways, but the storyteller on any occasion had the freedom to leave something in, to take it out, to spend more time on a topic or less, to abbreviate, to expand, to paraphrase, completely within the realm of what was considered reliable reporting. Some scholars have referred to that as flexible transmission within fixed limits. And there's now a whole interesting body of research of what's called social memory. What happens when groups of people, maybe you guys do this here, I don't know. I have been in groups in schools and churches and fraternal organizations where there's certain key things about the history of the group that are regularly retold in public context so people know the story. How did this church come into being? What were key moments in its history? What was a crisis and how did God provide in that time? And those things become commonly known in ways that wouldn't be otherwise. That's part of what was going on in the ancient church as well. Then there's the whole question of the literary genre, the form of the Gospels. What do the Gospel writers think they were doing? And the best indication of that comes in the opening verses of Luke. It's all one giant sentence in the Greek. Fortunately, most English translations break it up. I don't know how much I can read without breathing. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so you know many of and it didn't quite make it. The certainty of things you've been taught. <laughs> Haven't practiced it recently. That kind of prologue that talks about eyewitnesses, people in the know, written narratives, but then told from a particular perspective with a particular purpose is exactly what we find throughout the Gospels. It's exactly what we find in some of the most reputable ancient historians in Jewish circles, Josephus, in Greek circles, Herodotus and Thucydides, in Roman circles, Polybius. But we have to use the standards of their day. This is a world without quotation marks or any felt need for them. It was perfectly acceptable to summarize in your own words what somebody said. Don't ever be misled by quotation marks. Don't ever be misled by red letters. Those are all editorial decisions made hundreds of years later. And sometimes there are different ways those decisions could have been made. Christianity has always affirmed that it's equally authoritative 
whether Jesus said John 3.16 or John wrote John 3.16. And I hope you know what John 3.16 is. The presence of the hard sayings of Jesus. No, I don't mean hard to follow. That would be just about everything. The ones that you would expect people not to have included if they had felt free to leave them out. Like, hate your father and mother. Show of hands of how many are obedient. No, 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 please don't. TMI. <laughs> Fortunately, Matthew has a parallel. That was Luke 14. Matthew 10 has a parallel. It says, well, what Jesus really meant was love God far more than family members. That's hard enough, especially if you have little ones. Why didn't Luke just leave it out? Or what about that saying that both Matthew and Mark have that Jesus didn't know the day or the hour of his return? <laughs> Harold Camping thought he knew better than Jesus. Well, yes, I can go to theology class and learn that Jesus in the incarnation emptied himself, not of his divine attributes, but of the independent exercise of his divine attributes, except when it was his father's will. Got that test question right. Why not just leave it out for all the problems it caused? There must have been some constraints. What about the topics Jesus doesn't address? that were major debating points in the history of the early church. I'm guessing in your top 10 ethical dilemmas of life, even the men in the room have never put circumcision on the list. To do or not to do, that's the question. <laughs> but if you are an adult Gentile male, in the ancient world, which had not invented anesthesia, <laughs> you fell in love with the God of Israel, you could become a God-fearer. You could keep 612 of the 613 commandments. But boy, to take that final step. <laughs> and there were Judaizers going around in the church in its first century saying, you must be circumcised to be saved. Acts 15.1, and a whole council that was convened to solve the issue and Gentiles in the satellite feed cheering when the, oh, yeah, they didn't have a satellite feed. Um, decision was made that they didn't have to. <laughs> Why not just quote Jesus? Paul does that all over his letters. Apparently, nobody knew that Jesus ever addressed the topic and Nobody felt free to invent something. Same is true of speaking in tongues. Not quite as much at stake there. <laughs> Pain-wise, but maybe shame-wise. Threatened to split the church in Corinth wide open. Why not refer to Jesus' opinion? Apparently he didn't have one. Or at least never articulated one. And nobody felt free to make it up. Ah, uh, but some people will say, the only thing that counts for me is what did unconvinced, non-Christian, Jewish, Greek, and Roman authors in the ancient world say about Jesus? 
Well, there's a dozen or more sources and seven or eight people, and you can see their names, and put everything together that they said about Jesus, and here's the composite that you get. He was a Jew who lived in the first third of the first century. His ministry intersected with somebody named John who baptized people for the repentance of sins. He had a brother named James. He was the so-called Messiah. He gathered disciples, five of them are named. Uh, he was born out of wedlock. <laughs> if you don't believe the virgin birth, he usually appeared, appealed to a Roman soldier who forcibly raped Mary, but something weird was going on there. He worked wondrous deeds, probably a reference to his miracles. He regularly fell afoul of the authorities on his interpretations of the law. And he was eventually executed by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. And that narrows the time frame to the 10 years that Pilate ruled between 26 and 36 AD. And yet despite that ignominious death, some of his followers believed they saw him raised from the dead, continued to announce that he was the Messiah, and began to meet on a regular basis and even sing hymns to him as if he were a god. So those websites that say there's no evidence for Jesus, they're just making stuff up. Because you can do that on a website. <laughs> you say, well, that's not a lot of information. True, but... Who knew that this small sectarian movement would become the largest religion in the world someday? It's, it's about the amount you would have expected by ancient standards. Other people say, no, I only want rock-solid evidence. <laughs> the evidence of the rocks, of archaeology. And archaeology has confirmed so many things uh, there are things archaeology can't confirm. Did Jesus say the Sermon on the Mount exactly as we have it? Unless we find a spectacular inscription that shows that somebody took it down and recorded it. We'll never be able to address that question. But we can address the things that archaeology can address. Just within the last half century, we've discovered an inscription confirming Pontius Pilate as prefect of Judea. We've discovered a coffin with nails through a piece of wood and an ankle bone. Prior to that, we didn't know that crucified victims sometimes had nails in their ankles as well as in their wrists. We've discovered a first century fishing boat big enough for 13 small people in it. We don't know whose boat it was, but the Jews know in Israel know how to attract tourists from abroad, and so it's been called the Jesus Boat, an entire museum built just around that single artifact. And nice price to go there, but it's worth it if you get a chance once. And we've discovered Caiaphas's tomb, and we've discovered the tomb of Herod the Great, and no, we didn't discover Jesus' family tomb. That was a hoax. <laughs> and... We've discovered 
foundations of a first century home in Nazareth. We knew that Nazareth was populated in the third century BC and the third century AD. It makes sense that it was always populated. But if you're a hardened skeptic, you say, we haven't found any first century stones. Well, now we have, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, and so forth, to quote the king in The King and I. And then there's the testimony of non-Christian writers like Josephus. I, sorry, said that, going backwards. You're hoping I'm going forward. There's the testimony of other early Christian writers. Yes, Paul, who wrote mostly in the 50s before the Gospels, so he didn't just say, Luke, can I borrow your scroll and look something up? <laughs> he quotes Jesus because he learned it from somebody else. But where I want to end is with a fascinating passage for lots of reasons in 1 Corinthians 15. A long chapter all about the resurrection of Jesus. And starting in verse 3, Paul writes, For what I received, I passed on to you. Two verbs received and passed on in both Greek and Hebrew that when used together in a context in which it fits typically meant the memorized transmission of oral tradition. As of first importance, footnote, got to read those footnotes, or at the first, or it could mean both. What I received at the first, I passed on to you at the first. What was taught to me when I became a follower of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, and gave up my Pharisaic ways in certain respects. That... Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Hint, hint, go ask them if you don't believe me. Although a few have fallen asleep, have died. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles and last of all as to one untimely born to me. What reads very much like an early confession of faith with clipped short clauses in the Greek in parallelism in highly condensed form. And if that's something that Paul learned at the first so that he taught others at the first as of first importance, that means he learned that within a couple years of Jesus' death because that's when you crunch the numbers when he was converted. That's not some slow, evolving myth or legend years after people forgot about Jesus, the nice Jewish rabbi, and turned him into a god. That's right in there from the beginning. So I end with a, a metaphor from the world of long jumping. Any long jumpers in here? Yay, all right, I'm not. I got a bad knee that needs to be replaced and never was. I always had in high school what they called white man's disease. I couldn't jump. Um, 
There are three ways to do a long jump. Did you know that? Now, one of them I've never actually seen done. And it, it would make a fun video clip. Um, you run down the track, and when you get to the line, kind of like the Roadrunner used to do better than the Wiley Coyote, um, you screech to a stop, and then in a giant feat of bodily contortion, you whirl your body around and fling yourself back in the direction from which you came as far as you go. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Then there is the long jump you can do at the Denver Zoo, and probably other places too, where you're not allowed to run up, you just stand at the line, and you swing your arms and your knees and you jump and you look to see what kind of animal you were on the chart next to you compared to how far the animals can jump. And the third one is what we actually do. You run down the, the track and then at some point you got to jump and see how far you can jump. That to me seems to be a very good analogy for the three ways that scholars have imagined the relationship between faith and historical information of this kind. The more liberal or skeptical ones say it's like that first example. You have to believe in spite of the evidence. Well, I don't think so. I think there's too much evidence to make that true. You're not trying to throw yourself back in a direction opposite of the impetus of the evidence. There are others, many of whom are also in Christian churches, that just put faith and history in watertight compartments and never the two shall meet. I believe this, I do my history over here, and I'm an intellectual schizophrenic. I just jump. It's Kierkegaard's leap of faith. <laughs> or there's the actual long jump. There's no way a historian can prove the inerrancy of scripture. There's no way the historian can prove the likelihood of 90% of all the Bible, especially if you start with the Old Testament. Probably not even 90% of the Gospels, because what kind of evidence would ever prove or disprove that Jesus said, I am the light of the world? I suppose if nobody ever had a light in the ancient world, that might suggest it was anachronistic. <laughs> but they did, they just didn't look like this. <laughs> but the things that historians and archaeologists can investigate, not without exception, but to a remarkable degree, over and over again, have confirmed what the Gospels tell us, and who knows how many more years we do have. It could be centuries. Who knows what more will be unearthed? We could just have a handful of the evidence now that one day might be available. I suggest to you, with some sources for more reading, if you're interested, that uh, as my colleague Doug Grotheis likes to say it, Maybe it's not even a leap of faith. Maybe it's just a step of faith. Yes, you can't prove it all, but faith can be a very reasonable, rational thing to do.
Let me grab my Christian hat, put it back on, and pray for us. Lord, thank you for Montana Bible College. Thank you for its decades of history. Thank you for growing it to the size you have it today. Thank you for Dr. Haida's years of ministry here and how influential he's been since 1995 to the present. And all the others who teach and administer and work on staff, thank you for each student and the unique ways you have brought them together here for this time. May they trust you when they have doubts. May they trust you when life throws them curveballs. May they trust you when skeptics say outrageous things that sound plausible and help them to be able to articulate in winsome ways credible responses that please and give glory to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.